Hi, I'm Derek Phillips, and today we're talking about my book, Poverty Powerball, Turn Adversity into Your Winning Ticket, and you are listening to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Brian H. Williams. Now, I must ask you, have you ever found yourself upset by a turn of events in your life? Events you did not expect, you may have felt were unfair, or you probably believe would be the end of your dreams. Well, if that is you, then our next guest may have some answers. Derek Phillips. Grew up in poverty in some of America's most violent inner cities. He's a U.S. Army veteran, cybersecurity expert, and, well, he's also a friend of mine <laughs> and author of the book, Poverty Powerball, Turn, this, Turn Adversity into Your Winning Ticket. Derek, welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Dr. Williams, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, Derek. I, well, first, love the book, and that's what we're here to talk about today. But I want to begin to, because I'm a military veteran myself, and I come from a family of veterans. <laughs> yeah, Air Force, Air Force. And I always feel a kinship to other military veterans, even ones I don't know, just meeting them for the first time. So I want to talk about your Army experience, because you have, you're a combat veteran, uh, and I want to not let people forget that we are still in a continuous state of war. There are people right. like you that are serving the mission. So let's talk about that for a minute. Tell us about your Army experience. So the Army, I joined the uh, United States Army two weeks after high school graduation. So when most of my friends are enjoying their summer after senior year, I was, <laughs> I was in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, digging trenches, marching, <laughs> and singing cadences. But it was, a, it was the best decision I could make, certainly. And um, my first duty station was Germany. Talk about a culture shock going from Gary, Indiana, to a whole other country, Germany. But it, was, it was a lot of fun. My MOS while in the Army, I was cybersecurity, um, and that took me to the last year in the Army, took me to Iraq. I served um, a couple different military bases there, but it was, like you say, it was a constant state of war. It was the country still at war, but I was certainly proud to um, just contribute and serve our country and make it back in one piece. Now, let me ask, did your... Let's just go to your book because a lot of the questions I have weave some stories from your book because you put your personal narrative in there while you are sharing, uh, I guess, tips and advice for career. Right. So you, you talked about growing up in poverty and uh, absentee father and the violence that you experienced as a child. Right. Was there a direct line from that to you joining the military? I would say it was a direct line. Um, it was so kind of what prompted me. I kind of my I have some family members who are in the military. I have two first cousins, one retired from the Marines, one retired from the Navy. So that kind of gave me some insight into the military. 
But the biggest thing that prompted me was my senior year of high school. I remember on September 11, 2001, I was getting ready for class. I was watching the news, and I remember seeing it pop up on the uh, news alert that uh, a plane that flew into the tower. And while putting on my shoes, I saw the second plane fly into the, the second tower. So it was just something about that, just being that close to that event and then seeing how those first responders were running towards danger while everyone else was running away. And right. it just triggered something. Made me like, wow, I want to be some part of something bigger than myself. So that was the biggest thing that really inspired me to want to go to the military following 9-11, see how the country united and just how people were signing up to defend defend the United States. That was one of the biggest things. But in terms of going, to, knowing that I would go to war by signing up for the military during that time period, uh, just growing up in poverty and you know, like in the streets of Gary during that time, it was like a war zone. So I guess from a mental standpoint, I felt I was battle ready <laughs> in a sense because I was already you know, experiencing so much trauma and violence just going growing up there. So transitioning to the military wasn't a big jump. It was I kind of was mentally prepared for it. Right. So it's interesting that you said you were a senior in high school when you saw the Twin Towers come down. Right. And this year, the people that are graduating from high school and training to go into the military are were not born in the current, you know, war that a war, as I should say, that are ongoing. Are, are are still happening. So you were in high school, signed up. People that were not born now are signing up to fight in the same war wow, that yeah, that's, you participated in. That's amazing. That reminds me of how old well, I am. That's, that's, <laughs> I get no. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's another discussion of, of you know about the geopolitical uh, role the United States is playing right now. And like you said, back then was the time of unity, and we could argue that that is the Definitely not the case right now in many years. But let's get back yeah. to you. Your the first uh, story you opened with was just pretty captivating about playing uh I don't know, you're playing Xbox or some video game and what happened there that led to a a seminal moment in your life. Right. So it's my two friends and I were at my house playing uh, what, what game was that back then? NBA Live. So PlayStation, one of the original ones. Oh, PlayStation. Playing, yeah, we're playing PlayStation. <laughs> yeah, real low. <laughs> so we're playing PlayStation. It's probably about 9 p.m. I was up a few games, winning. It's pretty good. And my two friends, they were ready to get hungry by this point, so they wanted to walk to Burger King. And my parents were not home at the time, and but it was past my curfew, so I wasn't allowed to leave out the house after 9 p.m. But my friends tried to get me to come. I was like, ah, I thought about it for a moment, but I decided not to do it. Just kind of like that gut instinct. And within minutes of them walking outside of my house, before they even made it to the corner, uh, they were a victim of a drive-by shooting. And both of them were shot multiple times. Uh, fortunately, they did recover. But keep in mind, these, they were only 13 years old at the time, so we were in seventh grade. And they were a victim of a drive-by shooting, Gary. Uh, but that, that experience. What goes to the year ahead at that time? What goes to the year ahead at that time? I'm sorry, I said again. I always went through my head at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah like how does, how does that impact you as a seventh grader? Yeah, so just in that moment, like I remember hearing the gunshots and it was so close to, so close, I like dropped to the floor. I didn't know if there was someone shooting at the house or what. And just 
my heart was beating fast. I just couldn't catch my breath. And eventually I got up with enough courage to crawl over to the window. And by that time I see the police uh, sirens and uh, lights and everything and, and actually walked, eventually walked outside and saw my two friends laying on the ground. One was actually getting put on the stretcher at the time. Another one was, they was cutting off his shirt. So that was just such a traumatic event knowing within just a few minutes ago we were together and that very easily could have been me with them as well with bullets in my body. And it was just a reminder of me just how important it is to do the right thing when no one's looking. Like I said, my my parents were not home, and but I could have still left out and, and they wouldn't knew about it. But if I would have made that, that uh, bad decision, I would have been in that same situation. So that was a valuable lesson, how I was able to turn that adversity, that trauma experience to a vital life lesson where it is very important to follow the rules. It is important even if you think no one is watching, follow your gut instinct and do the right thing at all times. And that rule at that time, you know, potentially saved your life. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, and even though you were not shot, I'm certain that that had some psychological impact. I mean, I am a trauma surgeon. I deal with gun violence all the time. So I'm thinking that even though you weren't injured by a bullet, that that had significant impact that it carried with you through your life. And I mean, you're feeding that experience into the narrative of your book, Poverty Powerball. So talk to us about what was the impetus for this is your, this is your first book. Correct, yeah, right? My first book. Yeah. All right. Talk to us about Poverty Powerball. What's actually motivated to do this? So Poverty Powerball, a lot of people, um, once they would find out where I grew up, they would wonder, like, wow, how did you achieve a certain level of success? Like, you've traveled to 37 countries, you served in the military, you, you've you just accomplished a lot of things, you uh, completed your master's degree. Like, you're not supposed to do that coming from Gary, Indiana, because growing up, I used to always hear this from family, friends, teachers, where they would say young black boys in that environment were a dangerous species, and you would end up either in a dead or in prison before your 21st birthday. And unfortunately, that was true for a lot of boys I grew up with. But for me, it was just something inside of me where I, I aspired for more. And I tell a story in a book where with my mom, we were um, homeless at the time, living in a van. But that experience, we used to have me talk about, like, what I wanted to be when I grew up and where I wanted to live and all just all these grand thing so even though we were confined to that van at the moment like mentally i was able to dream greater beyond those certain circumstances so that kind of triggered some of me at a young age so i never thought like just because i was growing up in gear growing up poor or fatherless that that was it for me i knew that as long as i was willing to work hard that i was going to be able to be successful and that's essentially what I want to capture in the book Poverty Powerball because especially now it's just so much negativity where I just kind of felt like uh, boys, young black boys are still getting that same message that, hey, they're going to end up dead or in prison um, just because of the color of their skin. And I wanted to show something positive, show how growing up in that type of environment can actually be your biggest competitive advantage. So that's where I wanted to capture in Poverty Powerball and they usually catch people off guard with the title, like poverty and Powerball don't go together. <laughs> but I think well, I, once you, some people, some people, some people say it does. 
No. <laughs> well, yeah, you you're going to play the pot. A lot of it is a tax on the poor, right? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's another show. <laughs> but, right, yeah, right, right. I wanted to help people reframe how to view adversity. And, and, and from my story was poverty. And I believe that um, just all blessings are not obvious. Many are disguised in the form of adversity. So uh, a lot of people growing up in poverty, they experience a lot of adversity. But at the same time, that adversity builds so much resilience and really that mental toughness, which I think that trumps everything at the end of the day. Someone can be smarter, wealthier, better looking, but if you're mentally tough, then that is really, you, that's your biggest competitive advantage in life. So that's the story I wanted to share in Poverty Powerball. Sure. So I want to probe that a little bit more because you mentioned some things. For sure, you're an example of black male excellence or excellence and rising above negative circumstances to become, you know, a successful person by all the objective measures that we have in society, military veteran, you have a master's degree, you own your own business now, you are one of the speakers and accomplished all these things. Uh, but, but we know that the cycle of poverty in this country uh, is difficult to break. Like if you're born in right. poverty, it, it, it transmits through generations. Absolutely, and yeah. you, you had a mother that was giving you good advice and you were had a good attitude, but it's, it sounds to me like that the, the thing that broke everything was you joining the military. And that is a uh, critique many people will have is that joining the military should not be the only being out of poverty for black, brown people in this country and anybody in poverty. It seems to be a pathway to get to that, uh, to raise their circumstances. Now, how do you feel about that, that that was the path you took, and there were some that would say, well, that should have to be the way he became a success. Right. So for me, I think nothing's for everyone. So I don't think the military is for everyone. College is not for everyone. And I was a pretty good athlete in in high school, pretty good track athlete. So I had several scholarships offers for divisions two schools for track and field. But I did view the military as somewhere uh, opportunity for me to become independent right away versus me going to college. I felt I still would be just a poor college student and relying on a college scholarship to survive. And I didn't have that family support group where I can count on them to send me money to help make ends meet. So I was kind of in a position where I wanted to, um, like I said, outside of the patriotic side, where I wanted to be independent as soon as possible. But to tie back and answer your question in terms of uh, just how I feel about I guess, that being a bridge for people growing from poverty to whether it's the middle class or get to another level of success, I just think it's just an opportunity, just like college is. And I, I looked at it as a way for me to kill two birds with one stone. I get to serve my country, and I get to the military pay for my schooling, which they did. By the time I finished my four-year enlistment, I had completed my bachelor's degree. So I just thought it was a, a smarter way for me to do it, and it was just the best advantage for me at that time. So I'm a big uh, believer in the military, but I just don't think it's for everyone. But at the same time, college is not for everyone either. Right. Okay, so 
you talked about your being a young black black boy, getting messages that you cannot be a success, uh, the phrase being an endangered species, which I, I just abhor that that's how they talked about people like you and I. <laughs> it yeah. really dehumanizes us. It is. Um, but in your book, you, you use that as a background for the story, but you actually universalize the, the themes of overcoming adversity. It wasn't about, okay, this is what, you know, young black boys and people of color can do. It's about, I happen to be a black man, and here's what I did, and here's what I did. And these are pearls of wisdom I want to share with you. Anyone who's at any station in their life, regardless of their race, creed, ethnicity, economic status, you will face adversity. Right. Here is how you could get through it. How – talk to us about that. You could use several stories. I don't want to give away all the stories and all the tips and advice. You could read your book, clearly. <laughs> but let's talk about the one about – let's talk about one about forgiveness. You talk about forgiveness. Right. So we'll go more to that. Get, with, with forgiveness, I think that's one that we commonly overlook in terms of needing to forgive others in order to really reach our full potential. And that's one I overlooked for over 34 years. And the story I'll tell is about growing up without my father. Even though he lived in the same city, he was all but absent. And it, for the longest period of time, like my early years, I just I just wanted to be around him. And he would say, like, hey, I'm coming to pick you up. We're going to spend time together. And it, it just never would happen. It would be many times I just remember waiting for him at the door or looking out the window and just being disappointed. And eventually, by age, by the time I hit about 11 or 12, that just it built up to that anger and resentment. And it, I couldn't even call him my father anymore. Up until about a year ago, I would call him my sperm donor whenever anyone asked about my father. Just, so it was just I didn't realize, though, like how much anger and resentment I had and built up inside of me and how that was taking a toll on me physically and mentally. I thought I was more so hurting him, but in reality, it was hurting myself. So eventually, I just came to the reality that it was me drinking that poison that kind of ties into a Nelson Mandela quote about how he says it. Yes. Like you're drinking poison, but you're expecting the other person to die from it. And I decided to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it really hit me. I like, mean, wow, say, like, say oh, that one again, man. If you're drinking the poison, but you expect someone else to die from it, that is such right. an apt description of forgiveness. Yep. And it was, it's, it's something that it was a light bulb moment for me. Like, wow, I'm the one drinking this poison. My dad doesn't even, he may not even be thinking about me or realize it, but it's hurting me. So one day I just uh, called him out of the blue <laughs> and we had a conversation. He was happy to hear from me. And fast forward a couple months ago, I was home in Gary visiting. He got to meet my daughter for the first time. So his granddaughter. And that's the beautiful thing, too, about forgiveness, where it opens up doors. Even though he can't be a father to me in terms of making up a past time, it opens up the door for him to be a grandfather and for even me and him to develop a relationship, which is what we're doing now. But I, I just I know a lot of people struggle with forgiveness, and um, it's, it's just so important to forgive. You may not have to let that person back in your life. It's kind of like they're saying love a person from a distance if they're just toxic for you. But holding on to that that anger and resentment is it doesn't serve you at all, and that's something I really want to relate to the readers and even the listeners of this podcast now. Just forgive. Uh, it was Dr. Maya Angelou who said the greatest gift you can give yourself is to forgive, forgive everybody, and that's something that I try to but practice you took it now. One, you took it one step further. You said it's not only about forgiving other people. You said you have to 
also forgive yourself. And that's even more important. Absolutely. About that. <laughs> Can't forget yourself. Because <laughs> because a lot of times we may disappoint ourselves. We may either we mess up a relationship or just do something that we didn't meet our own expectations and we kind of hold it against ourselves and just put ourselves down. And that's an indication that we need to forgive ourselves for that because we can't change the past. My grandma's always tell me, don't cry with spilled milk. <laughs> and what's done is done. You can't change it. So it might as well just hey, forgive and move forward and, and learn from whatever you were dwelling on, but you have to forgive yourself because that's the most important person <laughs> to to forgive. And forgiveness is part of the uh, pathway to re- recovery after adverse events, as you describe throughout your book. It, so it definitely is. We're, uh, we're coming to the close here, uh, Derek. I want to know, I mean, I could spend the rest of it, I could spend like an hour to just going through every single lesson you said in your book. <laughs> but for someone who has not experienced the things you've experienced with the poverty and the gun violence and serving in the military, someone who may not be able to relate to you at all on any of those levels, the fact that you're a black male, how do you frame this book for them. What do you tell them, okay, you read this book, here's why you should read my book, Poverty Powerball. Right. So with Poverty Powerball, even if you didn't grow up in poverty, I just tell it from my story, but I make sure I highlight the lessons and activities where anyone can relate to it. So poverty was my Powerball, but for someone else, another reader, it may be cancer, it may be divorce, it may be bankruptcy, something where they had to overcome adversity in their life, some type of hardship. Poverty Powerball outlines that blueprint to help them get over that, help them identify, okay, I went through this, I made it through it, what did I learn from it? How can moving forward, is this going to be the Powerball for me in my life and help me get through the next hardship that's coming? (laughs) We all know the storm's coming again. How is it going to help me get through that even smoother the next time? So that's how I make sure these are universal concepts. It's not just about and only people in poverty who relate to it. These are just universal uh, principles that will help anyone, just like we just talked about forgiveness. It doesn't matter what your race, social class, or anything, everyone has deals with struggles with forgiving. And there's nine other lessons just like that that's universal. Um, anyway. I like how you also uh, you name, you name check some pretty famous people, but you start off not with their uh, stage names or the fame names, so it's like what they were, what they were born with, and you're telling a story, and at the end, you're like, oh my, oh my gosh, that's so and so, they went through all that, and now they are this. So right. I like how you keep it personal with your own story, you relate it to the reader, and then you kind of drop in these, these superstars that there are people that I didn't realize what, where they came from. Some stories you know, but others you don't, but it, right. it's very motivational and it's inspiring. And it's a story about resiliency and overcoming adversity. And uh, uh, it's a great job. And I, I thank you for sharing your story, or at least part of your story here on the show. And I will tell you there's much more in the book. I uh, highly suggest you uh, give it a read. Derek Phillips, author of Poverty Powerball, Turn Adversity Into Your Winning Ticket. Now, Derek is 
my listeners want to contact you after the show, where can we reach you? So I have a unique name. It's spelled Derich, D-E-R-R-I-C-H. That's pretty much all of my handles, Derich Phillips. Uh, my website's DerichPhillips.com, and all my social media is Derich Phillips. It's pretty easy to find. <laughs> and, and, also, and you're also a speaker, too? I, I am. So all my information I'm speaking is on my website, DerichPhillips.com, and the book Poverty Powerball is on Amazon. That's the um, preferred place to pr- purchase it. And also, like you, I'm, I host a podcast, the Mentor Select Podcast. Oh, yeah. I thought we just mentioned that. <laughs> You're a guest on the podcast, apparently. I appreciate that. It's a good show. It's, it's, it's funny how people have... pay it forward, right? It does. Yeah. Right, right. All right, Derek Phillips at com. Thanks for being on the show talking about Poverty Powerball and giving my listeners some advice on how to overcome adversity. And for all of you, I am Dr. Brian Williams. You can contact me at brianwilliamsmd.com, and there you will find all of my social media tags. You can send me an email. And this podcast, Race, Violence, and Medicine, is available anywhere you get your podcast. So I know you're listening, but maybe your friends, family, and colleagues have not heard of it. I would be most grateful if you please share with them the show, Race, Violence, and Medicine. Until next time, I want to thank you for being a subscriber and a loyal listener. I appreciate every single one of you.